Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List podcast on supply chain resilience. I'm James Baker, the Containers Editor at Lloyd's List, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Zenita Chief Analyst Peter Sand, Global Shippers Forum Director James Hookham, Zen Cargo Co-Founder and Chief Executive Alex Hersham, and my colleague Shishin Chen, the Lloyd's List Asia Editor. The issue of supply chain resilience really reared its head during the difficult years of the pandemic, when the container supply chain suffered its biggest disruption in its its 60-year history. While the worst of that congestion has now retreated, events such as the ever-given blockage of the Suez Canal show just how much a single black swan event can affect the smooth flow of goods. The question now is, What's the industry learned from the experience of the last two or three years? And is it better place to handle those shocks when they inevitably show up again? I'd like to start with Peter and just ask you to look into your crystal ball, Peter, and and give us an idea of what's going to hit us next. What's the next big threat? What, what are the types of threats that we should be looking out for? Obviously, we can't tell what's coming, but what are the things that can affect supply chain's resilience? Yeah, well, you're spoiled for choice, as always, in the global shipping market with things that can go wrong, things that will most likely uh, get uh, in your way, and obstacles that you need to remove in order to, uh, to, uh, to, to limit uh, the, uh, the transit times uh, going, going forward. Uh, but I think if I am to conclude just in brief, did the shipping industry have a whole long list of le- lessons learned from the COVID years? I don't really think so. I uh, I think a lot of people really got uh, into uh, into their trenches during the COVID years. Uh, many of them are probably still in the trenches, trying to find their way out. But uh, but I'm pretty sure also that they they did not uh, have a whole lot of uh, say checks on their list, saying that okay, we dealt with this once and for all. We will never see the obstacles of uh, say imports into U.S. West Coast again or uh, uh, problems with uh, with the Suez Canal or, or the Panama Canal or anything. I think that's a perfect opportunity to throw it over to, let's start with Alex, who's, who's, who's shipping his customers' goods around the world. Have they learned their lesson? Has anything been taken on board? Yeah, I think a lot has. I think, um, I think one of the problems with supply chains is that there are so many variables that it's easy to sort of look from the outside in and say they haven't got all the variables under control because that's just hard to do. But I think if I look at if I look at businesses that we work with, are they trying to progress their supply chains? Are they trying to have more visibility? Are they thinking about sort of different sourcing patterns? Are they trying to better match supply and demand? And are they also acknowledging that supply chains are very, very difficult and therefore they won't get everything right all the time? I think yes. Do they have absolutely everything under control at all times? No, but I don't think you can in supply chains. I think what will be interesting is as we look into next year and the year after, you know, where capital budgets are set, um, you know, coming through a recessionary environment, it'll be interesting to see how much investment is still made in the supply chain. And then maybe in a year or two, we can say, yes, they really have learned their lesson or no, they haven't. But at this point, I would give people more credit in terms of what they're trying to do with their supply chain. James, you're here representing the the actual cargo owners, the shippers. Um, I mean, does... There is this question, I guess, is supply chain resilience just a buzzword? Is it just a, a sort of fairly empty phrase that people like to talk about but don't actually do anything about? Or are these investments actually being made? 
Well, my experience, uh, James, is there's certainly a lot of thinking going on. Um, I, I don't think uh, too many businesses came through uh, the past few years without plenty to think about and plenty of scars to demonstrate they don't really want to go through it all again if they can avoid it. I think apart from simply thinking through the consequences of the next black swan event, I think it's important to realise that um, some really big changes going on in supply chain thinking anyway, not least because of this requirement to perhaps diversify supplies or sources of supplies, but also because of climate change thinking and and the possibility of needing to shorten supply chains uh, and so on. And depending on the sophistication of the business, there is quite a lot of detailed thinking that's going on, not just about supply chain, but the whole resilience of the business as, as a corporate entity, not, not just its exposure to, uh, to the, the transport markets. And there's, there's some areas perhaps we could get into, because I, I think this isn't just about threats to the physical movement of goods. I think there's some important thinking going on about the vulnerability of systems to manage supply chains to, for example, cyber attack, or, or even just set, simply network outage because of um, climate change effects and so on. So maybe we could talk about that a bit later. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I did want to raise was the idea of not so much the black swans, but the the white swans that we do know about. Um, We've got the environmental issues. We've got ESG. I mean, there was a very interesting report out um, just for the weekend, something like 70 percent, two thirds of of chief executives are worried about human rights in their supply chain. It strikes me that these things are becoming far more critical for for and for anyone involved in, in shipping. Um, and whether it's the you know the physical issues of climate change, whether it's the we have to be doing transporting goods either less or or whether it's these social factors as well. Well, indeed, and and it, ESG policies are a, a long term uh, trend. I, I I think as um, funding becomes available, these these big difficult decisions will be embraced. Um, I think there is a for, particularly for listed companies and, and those with a wide uh, brand exposure. I think there are s- serious downsides uh, to um, unfavourable um, comment and unfavourable exposure in the press and to shareholders and so on. So that's that's part of the resilience proofing package which i was really talking about it's it's supply physical supply chain movements are seen as part of a range of issues that companies are needing to respond to um to to make sure that when the next big issue comes along they have got some options which was not available to them during in, in 2020 that's what got so many people into trouble they just did not have a plan b whereas a lot of thinking is going into now. So let's just model certain scenarios and see what our capabilities are and those of our contractors um, and suppliers to, to uh, respond to that. And, and let's, let's, let's try and do some modelling and some understanding. And we can get into talking about digital twins for supply chains and other quite uh, advanced techniques that are coming through now and, and are available uh, to allow that kind of modelling to take place. Okay. One thing I want to ask um, to, to Alex particularly, you mentioned the investment. I mean, we are going well through. We're not going into. We're going through a fairly tough uh, economic environment at the moment. Is that putting a hold on things? I mean, this, these things tend to get pushed to the back burner when when times are tough, and particularly when people are fighting for survival. Doing the the, the good thing, the right thing, can tend to slip off the radar a little. Um, 
what what's your view on that from where you're sitting? I think it depends what this stuff means. Um, it's a tough economic environment. And for those of us that, that lead businesses or that are senior in businesses, you know that in these economic environments, you really try to focus on what you're good at and sort of come out stronger. That tends to be the sort of core mantra of how businesses operate in these type of environments. And so if you think about what allows you to come out stronger, if I'm in a apparel business or I'm, I'm a brand or whatever it might be, I definitely want to come out stronger from a supply chain perspective. I want better working capital management, ideally enabled by my supply chain. I want more manageable costs. They don't always have to be lower, but they have to tie in with my working capital strategy. And I'm starting to think a lot about both the future issues in China, which I think everyone is waking up to, and the issues around ESG. And I'm trying to make sure that all those things tie in together. But this isn't theory. This is reality for business. And I think for some business, yeah, it will be really hard to dovetail all those things at the same time. And they might take the view that right now, let's focus on inventory management and getting sort of emerging stronger so that in 2024, we can then really build a five or six year plan to 2030 to build that resilience in ESG that we want to build. And for me, that that if that was the strategy of a business, I wouldn't say that's a bad strategy, just as long as when they come out stronger, um, they really do invest and think about future proofing their supply chain, both from a sourcing perspective, but also from an ESG perspective. Okay, cool. You, you mentioned inventories in that somewhere. I mean, um, Peter, this is something you've you've written on quite a lot and discussed quite a lot. And again, this goes back to think how how do companies manage those inventories in a in a period of very high interest rates when there's a high cost to maintain safe stock? How, how's this playing out? Because all it takes is one one sort of breakdown in the network, and suddenly we've got shortages again. But companies can't afford to hold high inventories to be safe. We talked about a lot about this back during the pandemic of, of people building up. Um, uh, building up stock levels so they could get through this. They can't afford to do that now. So uh, is it pushing that away? Peter or James? Yeah, I think if is if this? I can give a first stab at that, uh, James, I think uh, they can't afford not to. Uh, I mean, they may have all the wrong things at their inventories right now, but uh, but do they have a choice to, to get rid of it? Well, some sectors do have the choice to get rid of it some simply need to say have a have a sale uh, inventory clearance sale uh, stuff like that especially uh, for, for for retail or fashion apparels where they simply do not have the uh, the the option of uh, of rolling it over to the next season because then it will just be say completely obsolete try and sell goods like that uh, so uh, so you're absolutely right uh, james at at uh, at Sineta, we've we've dived quite deeply into it to the alternatives for all global shippers to make their supply chains more resilient from just building higher inventories to literally a full relocation of their manufacturing facilities. And obviously, you cannot really do so at a large scale in short time. So, so what we do see at the more expensive end is, is, is what we literally uh, have, have learned, for, for instance, like, like uh, Apple having now uh, an assembly uh, facility being set up in India. Uh, they are not completely unplugging China. Nobody wants that, I think. Uh, nobody uh, can do that. Uh, all uh, at, at at any time at all, uh, so so having that China plus one strategy, or at least just making sure that they are not 
say, overly reliant on one uh, origin uh, for, for, for their goods. Uh, at least, I mean, many boardrooms will have a, a reality check uh, these uh, coming month because they all cried wolf in the sense that, okay, we need to, f to, to make it the make expensive choices now uh, we need everyone needs to uh, to say relocate part of their manufacturing to southeast asia or in the north american case to uh, to mexico for instance but uh, but i think a lot of a lot of board uh, meetings may have doubt voiced right now because as you mentioned i mean there are no cheap options here and they would all hate to see uh, them as a say a, a pioneer or first mover making the wrong choice in in, in going to uh, to any place. I think the safe the safe bet right now for Americans at least Vietnam. But then again, I mean, there's also a limit to how how much Vietnam can scale. But at Senator, we can we can we can surely see that air cargo out of Vietnam and also container shipping out of Vietnam into North America and U.S. in particular have really seen five booming years. And, but it all starts. The, before the pandemic, uh, so um, so so some had a late wake up call, and and some are just joining the bandwagon now. Let me let me just bring in Shushan here to get the, the the China perspective on this because he, he's there at the coal face. I mean, what does this feel like from from China, Shushan? Is is this is the impact being felt there? And you know, in some ways, China was the source of the, the the original disruption in terms of the right at the start of the pandemic when the factories closed. So what, what's the sense there in terms of building up these, making these supply chains more resilient, stronger, preventing this happening again? Uh, so I, I think I agree uh, with the uh, other speakers um, in terms of uh, the difficulties of companies to move the supply chains substantially from China. You know, we, even with the, the China plus one or plus two strategy. Um, and, you know, for the foreseeable future, uh, China is probably going to be, uh, remain as the main uh, manufacturing base uh, for the, uh, you know, global industry. But, but I, I do want to point out that, uh, you know, there is an element of China's uh, internal stability uh, with the losses of uh, uh, export volumes to its alternative manufacturing basis, uh, for example, in Vietnam. I mean, uh, under a normal circumstances, uh, you know, these, you know, the, 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 the resulting job losses uh, from those, you know, uh, uh, relocation of factories uh, to overseas should be compensated uh, by you know the creation of jobs from other business and sectors uh, but unfortunately we are not in the normal circum circumstances right now uh, i mean if you look at how china is now struggling to have its uh, feet uh, you know if you look at how china is now struggling to sort of get its uh, economy back on feet um, the recovery is uh, weaker than many have expected. Um, uh, so, you know, um, so my point of view is that, uh, you know, uh, with 
the uh, decrease of export volumes, which still, you know, makes up about 20% of China's GDP growth. Um, the economic slowdown might lead to a stagnation in the country. And then, you know, less investment from local or overseas entrepreneurs and investors uh, in expanding and maintaining, you know, the existing capacity. Uh, that, I think, might create a situation where buyers and international brands will find it more difficult than expected to source from China in the next couple of years, even if they wanted to. Um, I'm not saying... It sort of becomes a self-fulfilling pro prophecy, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. So I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, this is a significant concern uh, for the moment, but, uh, you know, there is a risk that, you know, we should bear in mind. And of course, you know, the, 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 the Chinese eco economic development is always interwinged with its, uh, you know, foreign and diplomatic policies. Uh, particularly, you know, in today's world, you know, with the heat between Beijing and Washington, uh, you, I, you know, the 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 situation uh, domestically will affect Beijing's, you know, attitude, for example, towards how it wants to handle its relationship with, with Taiwan, which, you know, mm. is a and that is the massive black swan that everyone's scared of. Exactly, exactly. So the, I think we, we should def, we should definitely not ignore the the, the internal stability in the element uh, in China when it comes to sort of the supply chain uh, reshaping uh, in future. Um, the second thing I, I want to uh, highlight is probably you know the ESG aspect you know of the story. Uh, if if we look at you know some of the latest developments, you have voters now in Switzerland uh, who have approved a law whereby companies will be required to be net zero, not just themselves but also in they in their supply chain. So that you know that that means all of the big trading houses based in the country will be captured by that, and at the same time you have EU's. Cooperate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, so-called CSDDD, uh, which will require the member states to put in place legislation that reflects the rules within the next two years after you know, it comes into effect. Uh, the, the implication of that is European companies will be caught to not just disclose their carbon emissions, but also put in place plans for the one-point you know, degree target. And in turn, they will start to ask their Asian suppliers for plans for the 1.5 degree. Um, and if the Asian suppliers are not ready, then you will see, you know, the European companies starting to move to, you know, other uh, more capable suppliers, you know, to fulfill their, their, their environmental ESG uh, targets. So I think... In the longer term, you know, that, you know, the, the ESG concerns, uh, particularly, I think, you know, the uh, the environmental lack of it uh, will not only going to be a challenge for China, but also for the other, you know, developing alternatives going forward. All right. Thanks very much for that, Shishan. So I'll move on to James now. Um, similar question. I mean, 
How is this seen from the perspective of the shipper when all the stuff that Peter's talking about involves, it seems, building out a lot of extra network? Is that, is that a a challenge for for shippers to to build in this? I mean, it's, we've had this situation for the last thirty years where you can just go to China, get what you want cheaply. Um, it's easy to do business there, and the and the networks have been in place to achieve that. How difficult is it to to start sourcing from uh, Vietnam or Cambodia or elsewhere? Well, a, a lot more difficult than it's popularly portrayed, James, because not only is there the, the, the tough decision to make about uh, the costs and the, and the disruption that are, are change and the risk that you're exposed to by making that change, the key phrase you used there was 30 years. Now, that's a, that's a whole generation uh, of, of um, experience, of relationships. Um, these these relationships are, are deeply embedded now. And it's not just a, a question of um, switching the next order. Um, many supplies are made under um, term contracts. Uh, there's there's um, important service and, and um, quality relationships established. Um, after 30 years, we're, we're, it's uh, simply not a question of retrieving the um, manufacturing plant that you might have shipped out to the Far East in, in the late 80s or early 90s and saying, well, we'll have that back now. I mean, that was scrapped 15, 20 years ago. We're on to the next generation. Which, and those production processes are often protected under patents and, and, and other intellectual property rights, which you simply do not, as, a, as an importer, as a, as a buyer, no longer have the rights to. Now, that's that's not universal, but that is now an emerging uh, um, barrier to simply saying, "Well, we'll we'll take this all to Vietnam." It's it's another factor that's got to be played in. So I think experience has shown that most shippers will only respond to um, two things. One is obviously sanctions. So if a, if a, if as we've seen with Russia, if if a, if the world's governments decide what well, you're not allowed to trade with that country, well then that's obviously a game changer, and. The other experience we have is obviously with tariffs and, and with, with particularly President Trump introducing very, very big spikes in tariff rates. That changed behaviour. And I suspect that's got more to do with the, um, the, the, the transitioning that we've seen from, from China than perhaps anything else. So it's hard cash that, that, may, that may calls these decisions, James, rather than political pressure, I think is the message I'm giving you. If I can jump in on what James said, and I agree, James, with everything that you were saying there. But if you if you think about a boardroom discussion where where if you think about a boardroom discussion where James is sort of leading the why we can't move everything away from China and then you have you know the chief sustainability officer or the chief exec the chief exec and she's saying listen we really have to over the next ten fifteen years what you can see is sort of a okay well why don't we try to get ten percent out fifteen percent out twenty percent out over the next twenty years to countries like Vietnam or near source it depending if you're in America or Europe for different markets. But a lot of that secondary supply will be tied into China anyway in terms of their upstream sourcing. Not all of it, but quite a lot of it. And so when you actually look at that, it's a known risk. It's a very well-known risk. We've all now lived it and understood it through what's happening with Russia's war in Ukraine. And we can, we can all sort of see very simplistically what could happen. And we could easily be on a podcast in 10 years' time where, James, the topic that you're authoring is, how come nobody took this seriously 10 years ago? But you can see here, it's a perfect example of the constraints within supply chains that theoretically, yes, people should be dramatically diversifying out of China. Pragmatically, it's going to be really hard to get more than sort of 20, 25% out by 2030. 
And that's, that's, you know, that's a real risk for businesses. Yeah, which is what I was going to actually ask you, Alex, is with you, your eye on the data. I mean, what do you see in terms of that sourcing changing from, from your perspective? Is it still very small percentages actually going out of, you know, in this so case, two China? Things, two things you have to look at. What's happening on an aggregate level? And secondly, which businesses are thriving and therefore, and within those businesses, what's their supply chains? And if you take that second point first, I think the businesses that are thriving have actually quite a diversified supply chain because in a lot of businesses, especially consumer businesses, that diversification actually allows you to play around with things, sometimes get faster to market, have different products, manage your cost structure well. I think those businesses in general are doing quite well. Now, some of them perhaps not. But if that's a growing share of overall business, even if people don't change their sourcing strategies, as that grows in market share, you'll see more diversification. Um, I think what we're seeing in general, though, is obviously more out of Vietnam. Vietnam is absolutely booming, um, increasing um, uh, production out of sort of Turkey and Europe and thinking about how we can source more there, obviously more out of Mexico. But I think when you again, when you look at an aggregate level, I don't think we'll see and I'd love to sort of you know, hear James or, or Peter's view or, or Sishin if he's back online. But I don't think we'll see sort of in 2026, 2027, which will be sort of, you know, full five or six years after the pandemic and a full sort of three or four years after the war in Ukraine. I still think China will be a larger market than it is today. And on a market share perspective, wouldn't have lost more than 10 or 15%. And that's probably quite a large amount of market share to lose over that period of time. I don't know, James or Peter, if you disagree with that, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, uh, thanks for that, uh, that Alex. Um, uh, I was just about to, uh, to, to, to interrupt you when you mentioned uh, losing a, a market share of 10 to 15%. I would say it re would require a lot for uh, everyone to, uh, to, to, to divest their Chinese uh, facilities and, and going into uh, to Southeast Asia where we see uh, the best opportunities for, for, for global shippers to, uh, to, to start, uh, say, placing their, their bets and, and, and investing. Uh, because in, in, in many ways, we do not see it as a mega trend that they're bringing back their facilities next to where their customers are. There is still plenty of gains to take from, from global trade and also from, uh, from, from global, uh, say, container shipping supply chains uh, out of Southeast Asia. But we, we definitely see, you can say, velocity in, in that sense that, uh, that China has become a much more uh, difficult creature to handle, uh, not only... Uh, in relation to to Taiwan, uh, but uh, but in and also in relation to yeah, uh, James mentioned a while ago human rights. I mean the the Yugis uh, are still on the global headlines from uh, from 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 time to time. So so it's not really the place you want to go if you uh, if you want the positive story all the time. Uh, but uh, but I, I certainly take uh, your 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 views also on on the, the variety between the sectors. Uh, we definitely need to split between uh, yeah uh, if if you're shipping fast moving consumer goods uh, or whether you're into automotive business or chemicals uh, for for that matter. I mean there are 
striking similarities. Uh, there are definitely also striking differences. And one is, of course, also originating from the fact if you already have a very diverse supply chain, it will be easier just to take a few more steps, diversing it even further without, of course, making it, say, too cumbersome to run. Uh, but I must say that uh, some of Sinella's customers uh, are definitely running quite diverse networks already. Uh, so they would not necessarily see it as a huge obstacle to, uh, to dive into a few more markets because they have already done so in the past. They have tried their feet. But those that are overly reliant will definitely find themselves biting their lips in, in order to make that first big splash into the China alternative. Uh, so, uh, so, so watch out for, uh, for for those headlines from the big uh, uh, manufacturers when they when they do make a significant step away from uh, from China. Ten fifteen, uh, a tall ask, but uh, but I think uh, it will be an interesting number to watch because we have seen uh, everyone's reliance on China somewhat going down, uh, at least relatively in uh, the past couple of years. Well, can I just add to that, James, because that's sure. a really important point Peter makes. We're recording this at the end of the weekend at which Janet Yellen uh, visited Beijing with a very clear message. Yes, we have our differences on human rights and other political issues, but we're not going to let that spoil our commercial trading relationships. And I think that's a very, very significant uh, positioning by the US uh, to, to, to position these respective uh, issues that we're discussing. Okay, right. As I say, we're just we're just coming up to time now. So I just wonder, if, just a final um, top tip piece of advice from each of you. Let's let's work around the room again and start with you, Alex. In terms of what what should what should you what are you warning your customers to look at? What's the top tip for your customers at the moment? I mean, there's a there's a sort of 2023 2024 top tip. I think the long term trend is diversify in your supply chain, but have more flexibility. And that comes with great people and great technology. So I'm definitely pitching Zen Cargo with that, but that would still be my long-term view. And I think if you look to 2023 and 2024, just the reality is if it looks 2023 and 2024, it's going to teach us a lot of lessons around um, blank sailings, around disruptions, around all these challenges. And again, that sort of feeds into it. So it's not solve this one problem now and you're fine forever but build an infrastructure to be agile and build build a way of communicating upwards to the board. And I think that will serve you well. Well, look, I think there's um, other factors that uh, we, we recommend our members think through. We've talked about access to suppliers and, and to markets. <clears throat> I mean, the, perhaps one of the critical uh, things that might happen in the next couple of years is we do lose at critical parts of the infrastructure. I mean, look at what's happening in the Panama Canal at the moment. Look what's expected to happen to the River Rhine again this summer. But as the effects of climate change start to come through, we could well find that we're having to uh, modify at short notice uh, some of the supply chains. But the biggest uh, point that I'd add to this is that, and, and where I think shippers are investing some time and money, is improving the visibility of their inventory. One of the reasons for the ordering splurge in 2021 was because a lot of shippers just lost track of what was on, on the way, and they double ordered just to make sure. Um, that better degree of, in, of, of visibility, knowing where stuff is in almost in real time, I think is, is a is, is a capability that's with us now, um, sort of things that, that Alex is doing, <clears throat> and is available. The technology is there. It's just a question of, of linking it up. And with that, another important message that I'm certainly encouraging is deeper relationships with your suppliers. Because if you want that 
resilience if you want those partners that you work with to respond to your need, even though you know the world's coming about around them, then you need to probably engage a little bit deeper and invest a little bit more in the relationships with your forwarders, with your carriers, with your other supply chain partners. So that's the advice coming from Global Shippers Forum. Thank you. Final word to you, Peter. Some brilliant advice. So let As me always. just uh, add on, <laughs> on, on top of that. I, I, I think it all depends on what kind of shipper are you. I mean, get on top of your own supply chains. Build that next level. I mean, uh, if you thought you were on top of it before, you obviously wasn't. So uh, so make use of some of the good advices that we have already shared in, in, in this podcast, uh, getting that, say, next level of information. And then, of course, constantly benchmark your own performance, whether that comes in the form of, uh, of freight rates or, or inventories or just reconsidering if, if just in time is what I should do or should I build in more redundance with just in case supply chains. I think that's a bit of the advice that, uh, that that at least I can I see in front of me. Uh, make sure that uh, that you don't go all lean too fast. Uh, it's it will come about again that uh, that people will uh, will will nail it down to 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 the wire with uh, with just in time, because that's just the the name of the game. I mean, you need to weed out the redundance at some point in time, but in between now and then. Building All right, more that's redundant in order to, uh, to, to better end. be safe. Thank you, Peter. And sorry. And thank you to Alex Hersham and James Hookham for giving us their wisdom today, and of course to Shishin over in China. I'm James Baker. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Noiseless Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>